for that prayer. Side note, car is parked right beside Bob's beautiful black car. I think they're going to race after church. Got to figure out a good straight stretch for him. Uh, Tonight, my lesson is a mouthful, the circulation, the translation, and the survival of the Bible. And I'm also going to, if we have time, talk about the credibility of the Bible. Uh, and that's why I wanted Rex to lead us in this uh, song here tonight, Give Me the Bible, because our message tonight is going to be dealing mostly with the Bible. You know, 2,000 years, nearly 2,000 years separate us from the last book being written till today. And we, um, most all of us here have got a Bible. Most all of us read it, hopefully. Most all of us study it, hopefully. But we probably don't ever really give it a second thought of all the work and the heartache and the, the lives that were lost to bring this Bible to us. You know, we just, we bring it to church and we just expect it to be right. But we're going to discuss a little bit of that tonight about what we carry around with us when we come to church. You know, how can we be sure that the Bible, what we're carrying, is the Word of God? Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. How can we be sure that the Bible's been faithfully preserved over the years, these 2,000 years? And, really, uh, just as important as any of them, is how can we be sure that the Bible has been accurately translated into the language that, into the English language that we can understand and read. It's obvious that we don't possess any of the original copies of the original Hebrew and Greek text of the Bible. No doubt that those have long gone, they've been crumbled into dust many years ago, but what we do possess is handwritten, handwritten copies. Uh, this paper I've got calls those copies manuscripts. I guess that's a fancy word for it. But I like to just think of them as copies, copies of the original text that's been copied over and over again through the years. You know, we've got uh, ancient translations of the books, and we've got numerous quotations from them, and these materials serve as a witness that what we hold in our hands is the true word of God, and, and actually, we've got many more such witnesses for the text of the Bible than for any other ancient documents that are out there. So that tells you a lot about uh, about the Bible. Uh, minute and thorough investigation that is, uh, has established the accuracy of the Greek New Testament. The New Testament was originally wrote in Greek, and the accuracy of the Old Testament, which was originally wrote in Hebrew. You know, it's significant that the biblical materials found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that was discovered in the mid-1900s, I believe 1946 through 1950-something, they discovered these Dead Sea Scrolls. And, you know, they went over these with a fine-tooth comb. And what is on these scrolls are, were way older, centuries older than anything that we had at the time. And they all agree quite closely with what we were going by at the time. So that that's uh, that gives us confidence that what we've got holding here tonight is the true original text. You know, one can only marvel at the Jewish scribes. The scribes are nothing more than, than professional copyists that copied the Bible and the text of the Bible over the years. 
And you might ask, well, what's so hard about copying? I bet I could write on, I bet I could write one paragraph here stating something to the effect, I, Rick Southerd, am standing here in front of the South Highway 5 congregation on July the 27th, the year 2016, giving a lesson to fellow Christians. And I would give this to everybody. I want everybody to copy it, go around the room. More than likely, everybody on something that simple would get it right, probably. Maybe a few. But if I wrote an entire page, I, Rick Southerd, woke up this morning at 6.04. I had one slice of toast. I had a can of Mountain Dew. I left and I went to work at Detroit Tool, yada, 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 all the way through one page, and I had to give it to everybody. There might be a few that got it exactly right, the way I copied it. But I bet a lot would be there would be a mistake in it. There would be a word missing. I bet there would be someone would even inject the or and or something because they weren't paying attention. And, you know, you get to thinking about it. That's just one paragraph writing on something that we're familiar with in this time. But can you imagine the Jewish scribes writing about something thousands of pages, maybe something they weren't familiar about, and, you know, very few mistakes. So you got to marvel at what job that the scribes did. Let's talk about, to start with, this actual survival of the Bible. I want to give a few folks some scripture reading, and we'll read those here in a minute. Uh, Brett, look up 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25, and I'll have you read it here in a minute. Uh, Brenda Gross, would you like to read? Uh, Matthew 24, chapter 35. Uh, Wally, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. And let's go with Brendan. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. You guys turn to those scripture readings, and I'll have you read those here uh, after we get done talking about it. 1 Peter 1.25. Brenda, you want to know? Uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Wally, Matthew 5.18. And Brendan, Matthew 24.14. So here in a minute, I'll call on you guys. We'll read that. If you've ever done any research into ancient documents, documents that are really, really old, uh, you'll quickly discover that there's not very many that's left that was written before 500 B.C. And uh, especially ones that still exist in their original form, you know, even less that they've been preserved in the original form. Uh, much of this is lost, of course, to... The weathers of time, you know, as time ticks by, things decay. The, uh, the material they were wrote on decayed. Uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these documents were wrote on such things as, as stone stella on clay tablets, and a lot of the stuff was wrote on a material called papyrus. I'm sure you're familiar with papyrus. Papyrus is a sort of a water reed, a water plant that grew in Egypt. I didn't know that until I was looking at this. And they would take slices of papyrus and they would press them out, press them together, and they would polish them till they were slick. And the ink was made of charcoal, it was made of sorghum, it was made of and water that would mixed up. 
And this papyrus had a problem. It was not very durable. It would, uh, it would become brittle with age, and if it ever got wet and damp, you know, it would decay and soon wear out very easily. But if it was stayed in a perfectly dry climate with not much humidity, it could last years and years, hence the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were wrote on papyrus, found in some caves of almost about a mile from what I understand, about a mile from the shore of the Dead Sea in these caves. And so that material was wrote on papyrus. So it could be survived if it was a, a, a perfect climate for it. I can't imagine when they found that, how careful they had to be to make sure that stuff didn't crumble when they were trying to read it. But after papyrus, uh, then it was replaced by something called vellum. Uh, anybody here familiar with vellum? You know, vellum, I work at Detroit Tool and we used to have our prints on vellum. Vellum is a, is a fine-grained calf skin or a lamb, lamb skin. It's much more durable than uh, what papyrus was. So a lot of the reasons why stuff was decayed and lost over the years was simply because what it was wrote on. And, of course, we know about uh, for short compositions such as letters, single sheets of papyrus were used. But for longer sheets and books, sheets were glued together to make scrolls but scrolls had a, a drawback, too. You know, you couldn't be very, they were hard to carry around. They couldn't be very long. I can't imagine having to roll something out and read what's here while holding it. Let that go back and roll this down and read that. Uh, but as time went on, they did away with scrolls, and they come up with something called a codex. Codex is nothing more than what our modern books are today. They would take the sheets of scroll, and they'd glue them together to create sheets and uh, until the invention of the, printing, the printing press in the 1500s. So another reason for the disappearance of why ancient documents haven't lasted so long, I found out that a lot of documents back, way back when, were kept in a giant library in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. And this uh, library burnt. And it's believed that approximately 40,000 ancient books and texts were either burned or lost within that fire, although there is disagreement over the amount of those. So keeping this in mind, I find it very interesting that we have retained so little of our ancient writings that are out there, you know, despite, I'm sure, tremendous efforts to preserve all of these writings. Uh, even more amazing is that the Bible, which dates from as early as 2000 B.C., exists not only in its entire form, but it's a startling, well-preserved form with its original language, its original format and wording, despite many, many efforts, as you all well know, to destroy the Bible. So the survival of the Bible through the ages is very difficult to explain if it is not in truth the actual word of God. If you think about it, books are like men. Books are dying creatures. Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of you have old books, but they're not old compared to the years we're talking about. You know, a very small percentage of books survive more than 100 years. You know, I'm sure it's different nowadays because we can put books on electronic flash drive. We can put who knows how many books on a little flash drive you can put in your pocket. 
But still, a very small percentage of books will survive in 100 years, and even less percentage of books have survived over 1,000 years. Uh, I like to read, and one of the books, some of the books that I've got through reading is the books by Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I never wrote, uh, read that. I always watched the movie, the Walt Disney movie. Uh, what's some of the others? Uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth was a great book, uh, From the Earth to the Moon. And, you know, this is a, this is a classic book. So these books will be around longer than the most common book. But do you think, if you fast forward 500 years from now, would you be able to find a copy of the Jules Verne book? Probably so, because that's, that's considered a classic. But let's talk about, let's talk about a, a common book. Everybody here has probably read uh, the Muscle and Shovel book. It's a great book. But do you think 500 years from now, you'll be able to find a copy of that book somewhere? I'm sure the author has got copies. He'll probably give them to his children. Their children will give them to theirs. Then maybe two generations from then, someone will forget about it. It might get destroyed in a fire. More than likely, that book won't be around 500 years. I found this uh, quote from a man named Arthur Pink about the Bible. It bears repeating. When we bear in mind the fact that the Bible has been the special object of never-ending persecution, the wonder of the Bible's survival is changed into a miracle. Not only has the Bible been the most intensely loved book in all the world, but it has also been the most bitterly hated. Not only has the Bible received more adoration than any other book, it has been the object of more persecution and opposition. For 2,000 years, man's hatred of the Bible has been persistent, Determined, relentless, and murderous. Every possible effort has been made to undermine the faith and the inspiration and authority of the Bible, and innumerable enterprises have been undertaken with the determination to consign it to oblivion. And I'd say that's a very true statement, uh, considering some of the facts I'm going to repeat here. So here's some interesting facts I found out about the miraculous survival of the Bible. In the late century BC, King, uh, pronounce his name, Jehoiakim of uh, Judah, threw the scroll of Jeremiah's prophecy into the fire. However, God simply had the prophet write the same words again. You can read that about in Jeremiah chapter 36. In the early 4th century A.D., the Roman emperor Diocletian attempted to rid the Roman Empire of the Bible, only to have it reinstated a few years later by the next emperor, Constantine. As we're moving along in history in the 19th century, in the 1800s, the government of Korea outlawed and tried to keep the Bible out of the land. Of course, that failed, as evidenced by the church's presence there in Korea. The Soviet Union also tried to outlaw the Bible, but now it is wide open in the country and is flourishing. The church itself, if you read a lot about ancient times, the church itself, thinking it was doing the right thing, attempted to keep the Bible out of the hands of ordinary people. Jerome in 405 A.D. completed his translation of the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin so the ordinary people could read it. People spoke uh, Latin then. He was condemned by the bishop and accused of tampering with God's word, but still his Latin version became the Bible of Europe. John Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, and we'll talk a little bit about him, in 1320 sought to give the English people a Bible that they could read 
Wouldn't you think that would be a good thing to do for the English people to read their own Bible? But the church fought him severely on that. The archbishop described him as, and I quote, that pestilent wrench John Wycliffe, the son of the old serpent, forerunner of the Antichrist, who has completed his iniquity by inventing a new translation of the scriptures. Yes, Sharon. Right, the Roman Catholic Church, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would take away some of their powers and stuff like that. Yes, yes, good point. Uh, those who possessed copies of the Wycliffe Bible were hunted down and burned at the stake. With the possessed copies of the Wycliffe Bible were hunted uh, around their neck. But despite of all this, the English Bible spread like wildfire throughout Europe. The next one is William Tyndale in 1500, after the invention of the printing press, put the Bible in his own common language. But priests and bishops burned thousands of the copies of this translation as a, they called it, a burnt offering most pleasing to the Almighty God. He, too, was burned at the stake. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. The French author Voltaire in 1700 boastfully proclaimed, and this is kind of, uh, this is kind of interesting here. He proclaimed, this is in 1700, 100 years from now the world will hear no more of this wretched Bible. Yet in the year of his boasting, the British Museum purchased a manuscript of the Greek New Testament for a half a million dollars, half a million dollars, while the first edition of Voltaire's own book sold for eight cents. Furthermore, 50 years after his death, the Bibles were being printed by the Geneva Bible Society in the very house where Voltaire lived on his own printing press. Even after the Reformation movement commenced and the Bible Society's reform, the Catholic Church classified them with such things as socialism and communism. On December the 8th, 1866, Pope Pius IX made this amazing statement. Socialism, communism, clandestine societies, Bible societies, pests of this sort must be destroyed by all means. The Bible's been translated into over 1,400 languages. No other book even comes close to this. When the printing press was invented, in, uh, like I said, in the 1500s, the first book ever printed was the Bible. Since then, the Bible's been printed more and read more than any other book in history. In 64 A.D., the Emperor Nero not only tried to wipe out the Bible, but anyone who professed Christ, he blamed them for the burning of Rome. The city of Rome caught fire, a lot of it burnt. He blamed those Christians for this, which uh, history says he did it himself, and ordered their mass execution. There are about 7 million graves in 900 miles of caves beneath the streets of Rome, which speaks of his attempt to rid the Rome of the Christians. Uh, what a wonderful history. It'd be a wonderful to go to Rome. I think J.M. and Geneva have been there, right? Looked at all that. It'd be great to go see that stuff. But despite man's many efforts to wipe out God's words, it still remains. Does anybody want to take a guess of why you think that the Bible still remains after all that? Yes.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, there's there's some divine intervention here. This is not just happening by chance that the Bible can survive while all these other books don't. But to just put it put it to rest, let's see what in our own Bible, what God's own word says about the survival of the Bible. Uh, Brett, read First Peter chapter one, verse twenty-five for us. Stands forever. Uh, Brenda, Matthew twenty-four, uh, verse thirty-five. Uh, Wally, Matthew 5, verse 18. And Brendan, Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall come in. So let's hope that there's still more nations to the Bible to be preached to, huh? So, so we got some more living to do. So, right there tells you, <clears throat> excuse me, what God is saying about the survival of His Word. So, really, when you get to thinking about it, of how long the Bible has survived, it's an astounding story. It's really a miraculously uh, event. Think about for a minute. Think about for a minute all the possessions that you own. Think what is the oldest possession that you have right now, is it, whether it's a book, whether it's a picture, whether it's an article of clothing. Think about how old that item that you have is. The oldest item that I have, my grandmother gave it to me, was a December 8, 1941 issue of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And it's got on the front cover, uh, U.S. declares war on Japan. And she gave it to me probably 25 years ago. Uh, and papers in, just like papers today, were, were folded in half. So when she gave it to me, it was folded in half. And along the bin line, you know, there's pieces missing and it's ripped. Well, you know, I flattened it out and I, it's been in plastic. And I like to get it out and look at it now and then and thumb through it. I kind of look, look, look at the ads more than anything. The, grocery ads and the car ads. But think about that for a minute. 1941, 40 to 2000, that's 60, 59, plus another 10, 69, 70. So that paper 75 years old. I mean, that's a long time, I guess. It'd be nice if Felix was here. I bet he would like to read that paper. But think about it. 75 years, that's nothing when we're talking about ancient times. We think it's a long time, but it's nothing in, in the time frame that we're talking about the Bible. Uh, raise your hand if anyone here has something older than 1941. Wow, we got a few. Anybody here older than 1920? Older than 1900? We're down to three, four. Older than 1880? Okay, what is it, Dean? What do you got that's that old? Really? And and what about you, Bob? What's yours? Mine's up here. That's my 
Right. It's been handed down to you. Huh. Chris, what about yours? You had something that was really old. Who else? Brenda, you had something fairly old. What was it? <laughs> Around early 1900s or something. 1800. So, I mean, those are some old things. We've got, what, 30, 35 people in here. And the oldest thing anyone here has got is in the 1890s. I mean, that's nothing compared to... 2000 BC. I mean, uh, so you know that the survival of the Bible that you hold in your hand is just not happening by chance. You know, God has something to say about it. Does anybody have comments about the survival of the Bible before I go on? reading about, you know, right, and they, we know people have tried, you know, to, to destroy it. Okay, so now let's turn our attention over to the translation of the Bible. <coughs> Who here? Is can read and understand ancient Hebrew or Greek? Raise your hand. <laughs> I can't. No. I can't. Uh, so if we can't read, if we can't read Hebrew, and if we can't read Greek, we got to have something that we can read and we can understand. Uh, so you know, we got to have the Bible in our language, <clears throat> and hopefully, it's been translated. Correctly. Uh, over the years, the English language, like any language, has changed. <clears throat> and what sounded natural years ago and was a common, common sounding language is not common today. For example, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness is really no longer rolls off the tongue, does it? Uh, you know, the same phrase from James 1.21 is more easily understood. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in the New American Standard. Uh, and even in the NIV, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Now, I want to talk about a little bit on the translations and how something like the NIV is not something we should really go by as our, as our main Bible, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But this condition about 
uh, about how language changes over the years has led to the publication of a number of modern translations during this past century. And really, a lot of them have took off in the last 50 years, really. You know, there used to be the King James and only the King James and a few others, but they're really coming on strong now. But we have to be careful with those. Some of the most modern translations, really not modern to our years, but modern uh, for the Bible is the American Standard Version, 1901. Some of the others that's been come and gone, we're not familiar with. The Wee Mouse uh, New Testament, the Moffat's Translation, 1926. But it was not until the publication of the complete New International Version in 1978 that a single modern translation came into general use. And the NIV has outsold the King James Version since 1993, whether that's good or bad or not. So there are really two approaches when we're talking about translating the Bible. The first one is a word-for-word translation. So they stay as close as they can to the words and the sentence structure of the original Hebrew and Greek text. But sometimes a strict word-for-word translation can become cumbersome. It can be uh, sometimes incomprehensible to, to the intended readers. One reason this happens is cultural, like uh, this paper I'm looking at gives the example of like in the English expression, you go to bat for someone. Well, if you, go to, if you translate over to that to German or something, that might not make any sense if no one's familiar with the baseball term. Uh, uh, another reason uh, that word for words don't always work is it has to do with the way language works. You know, for instance, the English language has two words, faith and belief, to express what most languages achieve in only one word. For instance, I, I here understand that German, the word glob, globe, I'm not sure, I'm sure I'm butchering that, is the word for what we have as two words in, which mean the same thing. We're uh, faith is an attitude of trust and belief is that which we accept as true. So examples of the word-for-word translations are the King James, the New King James, and the New American Standard. And uh, these are great translations. Sometimes the main drawback for the word-for-word is sometimes they're, uh, sometimes they're not as easily as what you would say readable as some of the other ones. The second approach to translation is the thought-for-thought approach, also called the dynamic equivalency approach. Here the intent is to translate in such a way that the readers of the translation get the equivalent meaning as the original readers. And like I was saying, sometimes that's good, but sometimes that's bad, as uh, Steve Rook pointed out to me that the NIV is not one that you really should use as your main Bible. Uh, Matt pointed that out. Some other members of the congregation have pointed that out. But, so you've got to be careful with those. Uh, the NIV is one. The New Century Version is one. The New Living Translation is one. And then you're getting way out past the thought for thoughts. You're getting to paraphrase translations. The Bible is like the Living Bible and one that is really way out there called the Message. I don't know if anybody is familiar with the Message but it, it just gets crazy with what, with what it thinks that the Bible is saying. <clears throat> so let's talk about the NIV and the King James Version. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible where it talks about something like <clears throat> new Christians need milk 
and you're not ready for solid food till you get further along. And I think that happens a lot with new Christians. I know it did with me when I was a new Christian. I went to a Bible store and I picked out this one right here, the NIV. I was reading through it, thinking, oh, that one reads very well. I'm going to get this one right here. And at the time, I'd read the King James and like, and that's hard to read, those these and thous. But as time has gone along and my experience has increased of being a Christian, I can read the King James now, and it doesn't seem to be as incomprehensible. Does anybody feel the same way as that? Uh, you know, when I first started, I'm like, I don't want all those <laughs> these and thous. But you'll find as you become a Christian, Brendan and uh, Brian, that you'll, you'll get better and better with understanding the Bible. I want to quickly hand out some stuff here for everyone to look at. Brendan, will you pass some of these out to you this uh, side? And Mike, would you hand some of these out? And this is just some uh, copies. (coughs) And we'll let those guys get those be handed out. Yeah, because you can be led down a, a really wrong path. You know, a lot of the stuff in the NIV is is good, and, it, and it's it, 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 you know it's the same. But there's stuff that's completely different that can really lead you astray. So I would guard against that. Yes, sure. It's like he's saying. Yeah, it's like he's saying, figure it out. Yeah, you know, no, figure no, it out. Since the first bell rang, we won't have a lot of time. But this paper here, I hope it helps you. It just talks about some of the timeline of the Bible translation through time. On the second page, I just put up Ephesians 5.3 and gave you the readings. 
of some of the different translations. Uh, if you know, if you're if you're looking to purchase a new Bible, I know I am, but I, I, it's hard for me to purchase a Bible over the internet. I want to pick it up. I want to look at it. And uh, but anyway, maybe this will help you. If you look at the first page there, it's kind of interesting. As as time went on, you know, in 1611, when the King James Bible was printed was originally printed with all 80 books, and the Apocrypha was removed in 1885. And one note I kind of, it's just a, it's my personal preference. I mentioned this to Steve once, was uh, we're real adamant here about calling things by Bible names, right? We want to have things by Bible names. We don't want to interject men into the situation. And it seems awful ironic to me that a lot of us, we carry a Bible named after a man. James, doesn't it? I mean, I would think we'd want to call our Bible the authorized version or the 1611 translation instead of calling it the King James version. But, you know, that, you know I mentioned that to Steve once and he didn't seem to bother him. But anyway, that was just my personal thing. But, uh, yeah. Right. Uh, so, you know, the one that is most considered to be the most accurate, I've always heard, is 1971, the New American Standard Bible. It's accurate word for word, uh, but sometimes people thought it was too strict, and that led to the NIV two years later. Uh, the New King James Version in 82, the, the, uh, I read where the people wanted to keep the wording but take out a lot of the these and thous but then they found out that it wasn't different enough and they couldn't get a copyright for it so they ended up basically it's pretty close to the the king james people still buy it because it's got the new in there they think it's a lot different but uh i hope that helps you and i have more to cover here but as time has slipped me by does anybody else have any comments before i close yeah rob Same way with me with uh, Just carried it around, didn't help. Same way with me with trigonometry and calculus, you know. I, I remember getting A's in calculus, but I had to work at it. I guarantee you I couldn't do anything in calculus nowadays. <laughs> You know, I, I remember I remember Steve gave a, a lesson about the Bible and how people lost their lives on it. And I wouldn't I remember that, but I wasn't paying attention too much until I studied on this and how people were against the Bible in their language. It's just amazing. Okay, thanks guys, appreciate it.